You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hello, Kyla. Back in the office recording the podcast. Back in the office with our podcast studio, we're now able to have guests again. I, yes, indeed. And later on in the podcast, we will have a guest, Grant Gokatro, yes. who's a retired um, uh, integrated road safety unit officer. He was a corporal. Yep. And you have interviewed him. He's a great guy. But I don't know about what. There you go. But we have things to talk about, so we let's jump have right to it. A huge case out of Yukon to talk about. And this case is really interesting because have you ever thought about well, I mean you've thought about it, but listeners, have you ever thought about what happens if you get arrested for an impaired driving investigation? You're taken back to the police station, you're waiting to provide breath samples. Most of the time they sit you on a bench in a hallway. They don't handcuff you. But then you have to pee. And the thing is, you know, they're going to let you go later. Mm -hmm. They're going to release you. You're not going to be locked up in jail. You're not going to the hooskow. Mm -mm. So where do you pee at the police station? Where do you think you pee, Paul? Well, I know where they take people (laughs) to pee, and that is that they uh, walk them down to a a cell where people are jailed later on, not in an impaired driving case because you're not, but they don't tell you that. They put you in a jail cell to pee. Yes. And they stand at the door to make sure that you're peeing and not drinking out of the toilet in the jail cell. Yeah, because God forbid you consume water, which will have no impact upon your blood alcohol concentration and also won't interfere with the test. Um, But yeah, they, uh, they take you to pee in a jail cell. But the thing about the jail cell is that it is recorded. It's on camera. Some jail cells have a little privacy box where... Um, it'll like cover off the toilet so you can't see what is actually happening on the toilet, but others, um, they're just fully visible toilet is open to the public to see if they get a copy of the video. Well, and that's the thing. And it's also a jail cell, right? And it was the issue of it being a cell really that was a big problem for the judge in the case. So the case, the name of the person who was subjected to this is anonymized because the judge wanted to protect her privacy with the ruling, but you can find the citation. It's 2022 YKTC, Yukon Territorial Court, 39. And the judge, after going through the facts, is considering whether or not to exclude the evidence of the breath samples obtained um, after this woman used the washroom. And the judge at paragraph 44 says, all of this raises an issue. Why did she have to use a cell to go to the washroom? She was not in a cell while waiting for the observation periods or each of the breath tests. She was sitting on a bench. That would not have been allowed if there was any concern about her or her behavior. What caused the surveillance video to be created was her desire to use a washroom. Given that needing to use a washroom is part of being alive, Should that suddenly change the nature of custody? Think about that. I know. And I, uh, you know, it's a, it's a novel argument and I'm so glad to see it. And I'm sad that I never thought of it before, 
uh, because I've had lots of clients in this circumstance where they've mm -hmm. been stuffed in a cell. And it's not merely the fact that there's a video in a cell, as you think about it. You know, it's also putting somebody basically in jail and not yeah. treating them, uh, you know, as a as a person who's innocent until proven guilty and who's not, you know, shouldn't be punished. This is not part of punishment, right? But it's yep. sticking them in a cell is designed to humiliate them and to threaten them. It's a, it's a, you know, and that's how it's perceived, right? The court says at paragraph 46 <clears throat> that the only reason why she was in a cell was because she needed a washroom. I failed to understand why the level of control over her had to be increased so she could urinate. There was no evidence about other washroom facilities. It is hard to imagine that the correctional staff or police are required to be watched and recorded if they wish to use a toilet. There is no explanation as to why she had to be put in a cell and recorded as she used the toilet. It was just routine. And there is no explanation. I mean, it's it's not even just an issue of there was no evidence called with an explanation. There is no explanation. There is no justification for it. Um, and uh, police officers who are listening to the podcast, and I know there's a lot of them, uh, this is uh, going to be an issue. It's going to be something that other people are going to litigate. Other people are going to be bringing this charter application yep. uh, for a remedy in these circumstances. And uh, things that you do that may be perceived as um, uh, designed to humiliate people, even if it's not by design, uh, but may be perceived that way by the individual who's detained, uh, is, uh, is likely going to be looked at dimly uh, going forward. Yep. And if you are a lawyer out there um, and you have a client who's put in a cell but is not otherwise put in a cell at the police station, not just an impaired driving investigation, but any investigation, to use the bathroom, you need to argue this. The judge determined that there's a big analysis in it about whether the breath samples should be excluded as a result of the breach. And the judge really struggles with this in the judgment because she says, you know, they're not obtained as a result of the breach. Like she just happened to have to go to the washroom and then this recording ended up being created. It's completely external to it. But she ultimately found that the affront to the dignity of recording somebody, interfering with her privacy, um, recording her pulling down her pants and the side of her buttock and her engaging in private business was sufficiently concerning. And because it was part of the same transaction stemming from her arrest, she never would have been in that cell under monitoring if there hadn't needed to be breath samples taken. So she excluded the breath sample results, even though this had nothing to do with the generation of the evidence against her. And this is not in a situation where this has been litigated and people have known about it for years, but it is a circumstance where police do it as just standard practice. Well, we do know that everybody pees. <clears throat> well, yeah. And people do it. Police have done it as just standard practice. And I'm sorry, that's not, you know, sufficient. Not and uh, I, I cannot imagine that uh, in this circumstance where it's the first time it's argued and it is found uh, to lead to breath samples being inadmissible, that there will be forgiveness of this in the future. Yes. Now, let's listen to your interview with Grant. So we're lucky today. Um, Kyla stepped away for a few minutes, and I am here today with uh, one of our favorite guests of all time. Just looking around the room, wondering who it is. I'm actually in the room with him. It's Grant Gokatro. Hi, Grant. Nice to see you. Hi, Perry Paul. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, 
You look a little somber. Are you feeling all right? Oh, no, I feel great. Yeah. A little peckish. I overloaded on all your Halloween candy here, so I'm about to go into diabetic shock. That wasn't Halloween candy. That's just our regular candy that we have here in the office. We have quite a bit of candy in the office. Okay, yeah. well, thank you. Well, That's we let true. Kyla start to buy this stuff, and she buys it at Costco, and they like deliver this big, huge boxes of food and candy and you name it. So she delivers it all. But uh, you were here today. Uh, particularly, especially here, to train some of the uh, staff that we've got, that we've hired in the last uh, six or seven months. Great group of people. Yeah. How did it go? Went really well. Yeah. I, they were um, engaged, obviously, and no sleepy heads. Good questions. And I covered uh, a range of topics, but mostly on traffic court, the do's and don'ts. And the absolute value of having an expert witness. Well, of course, an expert witness. You can't go without an expert witness if you're going to traffic court. And so that's the reason that I always call you. And I thank you for that. And uh, not everybody does call you, but they should because it's a huge value that we get. Um, you and you. I, you and I, I know you're wonderful. You roll in your eyes like you're wondering whether or not you get that huge value. But I'm no, like I 100%. Oh, okay. 100% supportive of it. It's been so useful over the years to discuss the files with you and all the different things that we can come up with. It has been frustrating, unfortunately, however, sometimes in immediate roadside prohibition cases that, um, you know, we hire you for something that we know is a significant problem. You're very capable of explaining the problem. We put it to the tribunal uh, and the tribunal somehow finds some way to still uphold an IRP that shouldn't be upheld. And I've been thinking lately about some of the problems in the manual and problems in the training, and I was hoping that we could discuss some of that. What a great topic. Well, you and I sort of discussed various different topics, and I think that you uh, you were the one who suggested part of this. So What a great idea. <laughs> yes, the... Um... We are going to chat about smoke. Yeah, so the AlcoSensor FST uh, fuel cell device, um, we've known for a long time that you're not supposed to blow raw cigarette smoke into it. Oh, that's right, and it's, it's interesting because the way that it's written in the manual and trained is the only um, caution is that the uh, cigarette smoke or smoke could damage the fuel cell, but it doesn't explain uh, what a damaged fuel cell will result in. Uh, does the device lock out? Does it give an inaccurate reading? Does it not process the sample probably? probably? Properly. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and too much candy. And uh, falsely elevate the results. So there, there isn't much talk about it in the manual nor in the training. Well, I know some of the history behind it. Um, because the uh, fellow who was running the RCMP forensic lab here in Vancouver uh, was involved in the original training introducing the first approved screening device in British Columbia. And uh, basically what he told me was that they were thinking about what would happen when somebody would blow into an ASD after smoking, re reasonably contemporaneously after smoking. And they didn't want to do any experiments on it because they were worried that they would damage the device. And his concern, which, which ultimately made it into the manuals, was that uh, if a person blew raw cigarette smoke into the device, it would lead 
uh, tar on the fuel cell and make the fuel cell less reliable. So the sensor that's actually um, making the, the the measurement of of the alcohol concentration that was in the breath less reliable. And so that was their theory, yeah, and it was just to avoid damaging it. Yeah, it wasn't even mentioned once in the training. No. Even well, in the PowerPoint, they don't talk about that. They just say, hmm. wait five minutes after smoking. Well, it ha they had that in the alcohol sensor four manual. They said it may damage the fuel cell. They oh, didn't no, want to say F it would damage the no, fuel cell. No, no, in cell. the FST it says may damage the fuel cell, but none of that backstory what you said, if they would have expanded on it, why to wait the five minutes? Well, the thing is, they had no experiments. They had no science behind it. It was just a full-on worry about damaging the device. Did you know I did some experiments last year? You did experiments last year. I know about experiments that were done. I'd like to know what your experiments led to. I can tell you what I found out through freedom of information requests. Well, let me so, tell you. Okay. I have an Alka-Sensor FST. Brand new. Bought it a few years ago. And I've had it yeah. calibrated with you and your, your air gas. Um, so last year I decided, eh, this is interesting. Let's just see what happens when we blow cigarette smoke into an Alka-Sensor FST. And? Well, now I did these tests properly. I always I used a different mouthpiece, so I use a new mouthpiece all the time, and my first blow was always to register a zero to demonstrate that there was no alcohol in my breath. And then I would blow raw cigarette smoke into the device. And... How, how long after smoking? Like, immediately. Okay. And it registered as high as 10 milligram on the FST. Well, there you go. So it actually gives a reading. It gives a reading. And these were like regular cigarettes? or Except, they? Yep, they were just regular cigarettes. They weren't menthol. They were just regular, over-the-counter, um, no flavoring. They don't have those anymore anyways, because apparently we're not allowed to make that decision as adults. Um, yeah, so every, every time I blew cigarette smoke into the device, it registered anywhere between 7 and 10 milligram percent. And, of course, the problem with that in British Columbia is that's the difference between a pass, warn, and a fail. And you're getting an IRP. Yeah. So cigarette smoke in itself, uh, in addition to the alcohol that you might have underlying. That's or some, right. Or some other thing, or mouth alcohol. I was shocked. I yeah, was shocked at those results. I couldn't believe it. I was, I was, yeah, I was like, wow, that's the difference. There's a lot of people that have potentially received IRPs that shouldn't have based on cigarette smoke being blown into the device. And it's not recorded anywhere. It's not mentioned in any manuals that I've ever read that it could falsely elevate uh, a breast sample. Well, I'll tell you what I found in a freedom of information request. So I um, make freedom of information requests from time to time to the RCMP for emails and things uh, that they discuss. And uh, what I found was the RCMP in Vancouver after the AlcoSensor FST was introduced, decided to, uh, somebody in the lab decided to do some tests with cigarette smoke. Mm. And so not using an FST, not wanting to damage government equipment, they used some of the AlcoSensor for DWFs, the devices that they were replacing. Um, they actually destroyed the rest of them. They just like crazy destroyed them, uh, but terrible. Uh, but they took some aside and decided to try them out. So they put them into digital mode so they mm -hmm. would get a full digital reading. Uh, and then they blew some raw cigarette smoke into it. And they had a bit of a delay. They weren't just doing it in one minute, two minutes. They were doing it five minutes later. And they were getting 
fairly significant readings, more significant than what you got on your FST. Yeah. And it may be because they were using menthol cigarettes or something like that. I don't know. Can you, I don't even know if you can still buy menthol cigarettes, but only in the uh, States. Really? You can't buy menthol cigarettes in Canada? No, no, no flavored anymore because, wow. you know, we have to protect the children. Well, won't someone think of the children? Yeah, well, I'm not a smoker, so I'm happy to see it slowly be eliminated. You being an occasional smoker, maybe I am. don't feel the same, maybe you don't feel the same way, but in any event. My body, my choice. Point here is, sure, there you go. Um, point, point here is that we know that cigarette smoke can lead to... Uh, false reading indicating alcohol in the body and that is nowhere disclosed in the manual and that is something that is not discussed and they know about it so they conducted these tests at the RCMP and they found out that this was in fact the case and they decided not to uh, investigate any further one of the problems they had was they had difficulty finding uh, guys like you who smoke um, to do the tests and they decided they didn't want to write a report on it because they didn't want anybody to know about it because it was just going to cause confusion. Yes. Because innocent people might yep. might uh, have yep. that as a defense. Um, and it's upsetting to know. Let's talk about some other things that aren't in the manual. Um, I am uh, concerned now that vaping has been out for years. Vaping is not smoking. It's very different than smoking. It's a vapor. Uh, it's a vapor. Uh, and uh, vaping has been out for several years, and the manual has been amended since vaping came out and since vaping became popular. And I am shocked how many people are vaping. I see them vaping as they're driving. I see them vaping as they're walking. It's like London fog coming out of their driver's window. Exactly. And uh, there is not a mention in the Alcosensor FST approved screening device manual for British Columbia users about vaping. Well, yeah, and, and we're surprised at that. Why? In this day and age? I mean, the manual has changed four times in the last few years, and they keep tweaking it, and they keep making it worse. Well, they don't make it better, but they don't certainly don't cover this issue. No. And the issue is, what do you do with vaping? And I put it to you, what do you do if you've got somebody recently vaping? Because... You know, the manual says five minutes by anything by mouth other than ethanol. A lot of these vapes have isopropanol in them or some <clears> other <throat> uh, chemical that's similar to alcohol. Yeah. Uh, or ethanol. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I know we look this up every once in a while. But what should a police officer do in a circumstance where a person's vaping? The manual just says if they've had anything else by mouth in the last five minutes. Correct. Um, to wait until there's a... Uh, clear five minutes. Well, there has to be a directive that comes out. There has to be a directive that comes out from the alcohol lab to every department and detachment in BC saying because of the prevalence of vaping and the um, contaminant in those with ethanol or whatever, make sure that if someone's vaped, you wait 15 minutes, treat it like mouth alcohol. But they're not going to do that. They're not going to add that training. They're not going to send out that bulletin. They're not going to, they're going to continue to just do the bare bone minimum, um, and and some ASC operators interpret the uh, the confirming subject to the ability their own way. They don't ask the questions. They don't ask if you had anything. I've seen this a lot. Have you had anything with alcohol in it in the last five minutes? Well, how the hell would I know that? Right? Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of. <laughs> You had Kiko Man soy sauce. You don't know that there's alcohol in it. There happens to be alcohol. Exactly. In it. So the the the, the 
the training is there's huge deficiencies in the training and and the reason it wasn't such a big deal prior to 2010 is because these these would get caught in court with crown and the defense talking about these are problems the problem is after 2010 we have the irp so there's no safety mechanism there's no safety mechanism for them to understand that there's problems with these um falsely elevated readings so but what you think would be a a solution or a, the correct course of action here would be to send a directive out saying if you have reason to believe there was vaping in the previous 15 minutes, uh, observe a, a deprivation period until a clear 15 minutes has passed. Just like they do with mouthwash. Uh, or... or something to drink. I don't well, think it, so I don't think it mentions mouthwash in the manual. No, no, but we uh, talk but about it on the training because the mouthwash is what we use as an example for mouth alcohol on the FST on the ASD operator courses. We always have, okay, take this swig of mouthwash and look at it. Okay. Reading. All right. So that's fine. <coughs> Fair enough. They could do that and they could they could deal with it the same way they deal with with recent ethanol. Let's talk about the next thing then, chewing tobacco. You know, a lot of chewing tobacco has ethanol in it. Correct. And a lot of people chew chewing tobacco uh, at the same time they are consuming alcohol. And so that chewing tobacco in their mouth is likely to cons to contain ethanol. So, which of course is going to lead to an unreliable result on a, a fuel cell device like an AlcoSensor FST if the test has been taken within the previous um, 15 minutes of yeah. having that thing in their mouth. And of course, chewing tobacco, often you end up with bits and pieces of chewing tobacco in yep. your mouth even after you have, uh, have sp you spit it out. Yep. So what should be the instructions for chewing tobacco? The, the chewing tobacco is treated the same as any other foreign material. Find the foreign material, you remove it. The ASD, sh the ASD operator should uh, exercise uh, good judgment and go, okay, well, let's make sure there's nothing else in your mouth remaining. I know. And then after that, then they have to make a determination. But, but that's five minutes, right? Yeah. And we know that chewing tobacco has alcohol in it. Like most of them have some. <laughs> yeah, most but not all. So then that's a judgment call to be made by the uh, by the ASD operator. But then none of them are trained for chewing tobacco. They're just trained five minutes after something has been in the mouth. Well, if you suspect something might have contained alcohol, you're instructed to wait 15 minutes. But how many police officers know that there's alcohol in, in a significant... Uh, well, many of the a lot of that like comes out chewing tobacco. Yeah, well, a lot of that comes out in the training and on the course where there's stuff that's discussed in the course that isn't in the manual. For example, here's a, here's some examples of stuff that can that 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 could create a falsely elevated reading: mouthwash, chewing tobacco, uh, throat lozenges. None of that's in the manual. The manual just simply discusses um, three steps. And this is how you do them. They don't give examples of what happens if you find this and what happens if you find that. Okay, so my issue there then is that the manual does not reflect what the actual training is. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah. So the training obviously goes much further than the manual. And here we are dealing with this tribunal that relies only on the manual. That's and right. you do your best in your reports to explain what the actual training is and yep. why they're supposed to do this and this and this. And we send it in and we find that... For whatever reason, you know, the client's evidence is rejected despite the fact that they've got chewing tobacco in their mouth. I think if I think if the ASD operators out there 
understood how easily an ASD will display a falsely elevated reading, uh, they would uh, take greater care in making sure that they've covered but would up. they? But would they? I mean, well, okay, those, you know, look, those that have rewards in, for getting it. For, well, yeah, well, okay, those with integrity would. Those that have no integrity don't give a shit, and they wouldn't do it anyways regardless. Well, most police officers have integrity, but a lot of yes. police officers are dealing with, like, time pressures, resource pressures. Um, mm. Somebody they pulled over who's a jerk, who they can't really stand. Um, you yeah, know, there's well, got to be lots of things. I that, dealt with that, a lot of those people, and I, did it, I didn't let it influence how I was going to process the, the investigation because it wasn't worth my career. Because I have a pension now, you know, it's a good yeah, pension. Yeah, I know. The municipal I'm, police I, pension is I know. excellent. I know. I know. <clears throat> I know. But You're enjoying retirement. But. T- totally. But, um, um, yes, I, you would so, like to think that if they, if they knew how easily a falsely elevated reading on the FST occurred, that they would exercise more due care, but I guess they're just human. Well, it seems to be more discussion about this now uh, than there was for a while. I've noticed my friend uh, Denise uh, Childress, who's a lawyer in Missouri, has done a bunch of TikTok videos about problems with what they call a PBT. We call it an ASD, but theirs is a preliminary breath tester. But it's the same device. They're using an AlcoSensor FST. Um, You know, I guess maybe when more people know about it, more police officers will recognize it. But the problem we have is the IRP scheme, right? Mm-hmm. Where we don't get to cross-examine the police officers on their evidence, so we don't get to ever put to them that you're aware that this is a contaminating substance, or you're aware that this is something that you've got to take certain prote- procedural protections, mm-hmm. um, you know, to to deal with it when you see it. Um, but of course, we don't get that option in BC because uh, BC everybody who blows into an ASD basically ends up with a uh, an immediate roadside prohibition. Well, it's funny how in the manual they talk about the things, they talk about three things that create mouth alcohol directly in the manual, but they only cover two of them in the confirming subject suitability. Because one of the things they talk about what creates mouth alcohol right in the manual is uh, any regurgitation of stomach contents. Yeah. They discuss that. Yeah. So in the manual, there's three things that cause mouth alcohol, including recent consumption. Well, they don't talk about burping when it comes time to take a test. They talk about recent consumption, and they talk about what? Oh, they, it mentions how mouth alcohol is created by the regurgitation of stomach I know, contents. but when it gets to... Uh, and the I don't have the manual in front of me here, but when it gets to <clears throat> confirming subject suitability, I know that they skip over one of the three. Which it's, one is it that they skip over burping? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they skip over that completely, which is interesting because they go they talk in great detail about how it causes mouth alcohol, and then in the manual goes further to explain the dangers of mouth alcohol on the alcohol sensor FST, and then they completely ignore what they had talked about regarding burping and belching. It's not one of the required steps to confirm subject suitability. Any alcohol in the last 15 minutes, check the mouth for anything, sorry, Anything by mouth in the last five minutes, any smoking in the last five minutes, is it? Yeah. Well, they leave the third thing out, which basically is, in the end, I guess, one of your defenses on an IRP is that you're burping and it hasn't been covered in the manual. The police have no procedural steps to ensure that the person isn't. But how hard is it? This is this is where I'm talking about. ask the question? So many police officers, I noticed this in the last 10, 15 years, they're 
ability to display common sense has tanked. How hard is it to say, and they did this in the directive, because even before it became a requirement in the alcohol sensor FST to ask, have you had any alcohol in the previous 50 minutes? Sorry, the DWF. We, there was a directive that was put out when I was at URSU that said, ask them if they had any alcohol in the last 15 minutes. That's all we had to do. So yeah. we asked that. So put out another directive. Have you burped or belched in the last 15 minutes? How hard is that? How many people are going to remember, though? Well, too bad. I mean, some people, How hard is some that? people will remember. Lots of people will be so nervous that they won't say anything. Ah, there's cheat sheets. Everyone's got an IRP. I know, sheet. I know, but it, no, I'm not talking about the police officer. I'm talking about the individual at the roadside. Like, oh, that's you know, it doesn't matter though. You, I mean, you're, the police you're, are... you're basically trapping them. They may have burped, and and they may not want to say something to the police officer about it. I mean, a lot of people are really reluctant to tell the police officer their drinking pattern, well, that and often like... they lie about their drinking pattern. Well, that sounds like a them problem. Well, okay. So you're thinking about like a cop now. No, no, I'm no. I'm thinking no. like a defense lawyer. Yeah, I know, but thinking like a cop and thinking like a defense lawyer doesn't really work in the IRP process. Well, that's true too. Um, I guess it would uh, it would reduce the probability of that happening where a person has burped and they're providing a sample that's contaminated from mouth alcohol as a result of burping, but it would also... Um, perhaps take away one of our key defenses that we've got in IRPs because we've got people who have a long medical history of this um, who can establish that they've got uh, uh, heartburn or or acid reflux and they've got a long history of burping. I mean, I know that I can't provide a reliable sample in certain circumstances. There's times that I can go a long time without burping, but I, I, I have acid reflux and if I drink beer, I burp. Um, and I've tested myself many times and I've, you know, lots of times I can't get a reliable test. Sometimes it is a reliable test, but you would be taking away that defense. I suppose if you ask that question, um, if police officers ask that question. Very few would remember it because of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of IRPs I reviewed as a, as a, as a consultant, I've yet to see one where every step has been properly followed. Yeah. I've yet to see one. So, I mean, so at the end of the day, but speaking, yeah. One of the things that always surprises me when I get IRP reports is that there's they are designed, the form, and basically the way that the superintendent originally contemplated it was that they would all be the same. They would, they would be limited to certain information. And you and I were talking about this earlier. There is only one box for a source of of, uh, odor. of, an, of an odor, and that is from the person's mouth. You can't detect... Uh, check a box that says you detected an odor on their body or that there was a general odor around them or yep. a strong odor in the vehicle. There's no option but to check the box that says there's an odor of liquor on their breath. And that, to me, completely undermines, and it sends the wrong lesson to the police officers, but it completely undermines their their the rest of their evidence mm-hmm. because that's the only thing that they can check. But the idea there was that it would all be so cookie-cutter that nobody would have a defense. And whoever imagined it that way was really naive. Uh, But you think about it. Think how many. You've read thousands of them. I've read thousands of them. Mm -hmm. Um, No two are alike. And again, no police officer has done it 100% correct. What I've noticed now is that the overall quality of the narratives has dropped dramatically over the last two or three years. Have you noticed that? Yes, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, The primary reason is training. Um, 
And the secondary reason, which is the bigger reason, is very few police officers are doing full impaireds anymore. Well, I think training and oversight. Well, that comes down with the training, the, the uh, impaired driving investigations, because the oversight comes from the supervisors reading these reports. Um, supervisors have a tendency to skim over IRP reports. Of course. Um, but are a little bit more attentive if it's a Crown Council. That's true. And a lot of the officers, I mean, police officers, hey, traditionally we're going to take the path of least resistance. So we're going to go by IRP versus report to Crown Council. And consequently, what happens then is we maybe only do one IRP every four or five months. Well, we're going to forget a lot of what we're supposed to put in there. The narratives are going to be bunk. Uh, there's going to be oversights and errors and everything else. It's those officers that do them all the time that tend to have it down to a specific art, as long as they're not copying and pasting. Which we see with great regularity. <laughs> yes. Yes. So the, the, the decrease, the, the IRP scheme is, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. They brought it in with good intentions, but what it's done is it's created um, uh, lazy police work and sloppy police work. Yeah, I would say that um, some of the dedicated traffic officers have probably refined their skills a little bit. Oh, I'm, um, I'm not talking about but, those but, officers. I'm talking in general. But the general duty officers, yeah. Um, yeah. I find that, um, you know, as and, and we've talked about this and belabored this many times before on the uh, on the podcast, and that is that the, the day will come when they're investigating an impaired driving causing death. And this has happened, you know, in cases that we've defended. Uh, and the police officer only knows, you know, how to fudge it with an IRP. Yep. And um, so, as a consequence, the uh, the crown file is so badly flawed. The investigation is so badly flawed that uh, that they're not going to get a conviction on something that's far more serious. And and of course, you know, most drinking driving cases end up uh, with the person uh, being pulled over, blowing into an ASD, and getting home. Um, and having had almost no symptoms and probably driving okay a lot of the time. So it's kind you of tragic that that's what we ended up with. It's funny you should say that because when the IRP scheme was um, in 2010 when it was presented to all of us and um, I said to my bosses, I said, I see a problem with this. And they said, why? And I said, well, because... Police, we like to take the path of least resistance, I said, and members are going to do nothing but IRPs all the time, and then they're going to get that impaired fatal, and they're going to screw it up. So even back 20, that was 2010, oh, it's not 20 years 2010. Ago, 12 years ago, mm. I had the vision back then to go, this is a bad idea for impaired driving causing death. Those cases are going to be screwed up. I've been retained on several uh, impaired driving causing death cases, and and uh, they all failed. In the last few years. Since I retired. <clears throat> yeah. And, and awful, bo bodily harm work. cases, yeah. Yeah, awful work. Well, the interesting thing is I, I noticed right away what I called skills atrophy in policing um, as a result of the IRP scheme, that police officers did not know how to conduct an impaired driving investigation. And, of course, the young police officers really didn't know, and even the old guys um, would start to make mistakes, uh, rookie mistakes. Then I noticed uh, skills atrophy in prosecutors, where, mm -hmm. you know, I had to try and explain things to prosecutors. It's a domino. And then, and then, of course, you know, there was skills atrophy with me 
because I wasn't as accustomed to it, and I'm reading these files, and it's different issues. That's because you're old. Well, and also I'm old. Um, but, uh, of course, Kyla didn't experience that. But I was, you know, my my last concern, or maybe my, actually it was my second concern. Mine was my, my, my own skills declining was my third concern. My second concern was um, uh, judges uh, not knowing the issues the way that they used to. Uh, you know, for years you were in West Vancouver uh, as a as a police officer there, and as you know, Judge Rogers and Judge Moss, who were there all the time, knew impaired driving law yeah. really, really well. And uh, now you get one of those cases, and yeah, there's some judges who were former defense lawyers who did quite a few impaired driving cases back in the day who know it fairly well. But the law changed in 2018, uh, and uh, you know who is a what judge is a real expert in it now. Um, you know, not many, I would say, would know all of the defenses that we used to know and know all of the uh, obligations that the police would have. Yes. That's the way it goes. But that's a discussion for another day. We're already up to 30 minutes, and I know uh, Kyla and I still have to talk about the favorite part of the podcast, the ridiculous driver of the week. Um, I've yet to be on it, which is great. That means I'm a yeah, good driver. I guess it does. <laughs> so thanks, Grant. We're going to bring you back again because there's lots to talk about oh, now, I especially as we get uh, as we get into the uh, time period after the worst of the pandemic and traffic court is back up. I want to talk about traffic court next time. Thanks, Paul. Prairie Paul. That was a great interview, Paul. Thanks for doing that. It was my pleasure. I'm going to see if we can get Grant on again soon. You know, it was during the pandemic, we ran uh, fewer trials in traffic court. Uh, and so we didn't use Grant as often. Uh, and I'm starting to see that we're running more trials. We ran, uh, I think the office ran three, three or four trials this week. Um, and uh, it's useful to have him. He's certainly uh, the most useful resource, I would think, aside from you, uh, when it comes to traffic court. Well... Shucks. Um, Paul? Well, you're very good at it. You know what you're doing. I, I listened to that interview, but there was a part of me that just wanted it to be over because I wanted to get to what's coming next. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. It's The Ridiculous Driver of the Week, and this one I love. A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination, the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. And this one I love. I love this. As soon as I saw this headline, I knew there was no changing my mind. This was our winner. So this is a man in Florida, so you know it's going to be good, who uh, drove a car with two missing tires, which he claims uh, was not because he was impaired or dangerously driving. Um, he was pulled over by the police when they noticed this and the sparks flying from the rims. And, um, when asked about the damage to the vehicle, he told the deputy that somebody had put a curse on him and that he'd hit, hurt, hit the curb too hard as a result of this curse, that he was given a do or die choice in which he could either drive home with the, t with the car without tires or set the car on fire, sleep in the median <laughs> he chose violence. Okay, well, that's interesting. Um, and uh, I think uh, to dismiss his defense would be uh, an affront to religious freedom. Yeah, I mean, he and was asked He was asked out of the car and asked to do field sobriety tests. 
And he kept yelling at the cop, going, this is from paranormal activity. <laughs> there you go. So he's got a defense there as well. Yeah. Paranormal activity. <laughs> Look, uh, they're going to have to disprove it, right? You just have to raise an air of reality. One really wonders what happens to people when they go to Florida. It's close to Bermuda, the Bermuda Triangle. Maybe they just get affected by paranormal activity. You could never, you could never know. Can't discount it. Um, he was ultimately charged uh, with battery on a law enforcement officer because he ended up having to get picked up and put in the back of the patrol car, spat on the police, kicked them, um, resisting an officer, attempting to deprive an officer of a means of protection or communication. Corrupt by threat against public servant and driving under the influence. Well, that's a tough break for him. Uh, I still think he's got a um, uh, freedom of religion defense. So that's great. Kyla, thanks so much. Well, thanks for your participation in this week's podcast, as usual. And folks, that's our podcast. If you have any driving law-related issues that you need to contact us about, or if you have been the victim of a curse and paranormal activity in your driving, uh, don't call us for that. Uh, call a medium. And otherwise, give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.